everyone and welcome back to the SaaS developer uh, community and YouTube when, where we learn important things about SaaS. And today we have Ken here. Ken has been very active on the community Slack and I invited him to help us learn about probably the most important part of running a SaaS application, which is SLO, observability, and you building a great platform to support those. So Ken, super excited to have you here. Thanks very much for having me, Gwen. I appreciate it. And so Ken is currently Senior Principal Engineer at uh, Workday. And before that, he worked on middleware at Red Hat. So definitely a lot of experience building platforms that scale and then operating them for extremely important use cases. Workday runs almost every business in the world and <laughs> I think responsible for me getting my salary, etc. right? Uh, quite possibly. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know all the customers, but I know like when I was working at Red Hat, we certainly used Workday there as well. Um, it seems to be everywhere. Uh, I'm often getting people coming up and saying, can you help me fix this thing in the app? Uh, and I'm like, well, that's not the area I'm responsible for. I'm all on the platform side. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a lot of companies that utilize Workday. Yeah. So obviously, if a lot of companies utilize you, availability becomes important. And this is essentially where SLOs come in, right? So Yeah, S SLOs are a key driver to both get a sense of how your service is from a health perspective, but also, and probably more importantly, to be a key driver for deciding where you expend your effort, whether it's with new features or improving reliability and fixing bugs. And I think that's definitely a change in mindset for a lot of developers is not thinking of SLOs as just a measure of the service reliability. It's a way to measure how you should be spending your time over the next sprint or your next quarter, depending on what your SLOs are currently doing. That is kind of uh, always conundrum and very often kind of gets negotiated. So does it make sense to think of SLO as a way for an engineering team to negotiate with product manager, engineering manager, other people who want more features and say, hey? Definitely. <laughs> I, I that's certainly how it's meant to work. Uh, the challenge with all of this is always pressure from the business to deliver new features constantly. Um, but SLOs will give us uh, that tool to be able to push back against the business or PM and be like, hey, we need to spend some time fixing these things to improve our reliability. But at the same time, it does require a lot of buy-in from very different parts of the org. Uh, without that buy-in, the SLOs aren't going to be successful and you're going to be in the same boat you were in before you started using them. Yeah, so because everyone always tells me that I'm getting the acronyms wrong, SLO is the objective. So it's kind of a public org-wide declaration that my team is targeting availability of X to yep. the service that I own, right? Yes, definitely. Yeah. And uh, SLI is a key piece of that, which is the actual indicator 
that feeds the objective that we're trying to hit. And for those not familiar, the SLI or service level indicator is merely just a fancy way of saying this is the metric underneath everything that is giving me the data that I measure against. Yeah, so it seems fairly obvious that as an engineering team, I need to be able to say out loud, hey, I'm targeting this level of service and have a conversation around it. Do you feel like it's usually well accepted when engineers stand up and say, hey, we're targeting this availability or is it pushback? Um, I think if the engineers understand their service well enough, then I think it's well accepted. It can be challenging environments. So for Workday, we have a mixture of uh, DevOps and traditional ops. So for engineers that are part of the traditional ops, a lot of them don't have the experience or knowledge of what their service runs like in production because they're not operating it. So that creates a bit of a disjoint between trying to implement SLOs because they don't have the understanding of their service to be able to come up with realistic objectives that they should be targeting. Uh, so that can certainly be very challenging. Yeah. Now that I think about it, um, one of the things that I've seen happen in more traditional orgs is that, okay, usually ops is the side that owns the SLO. They have to beat certain availability. Now they have limited tools to do it. Uh, they have to write to work with the software that exists. Uh, they don't have any other software to get availability with. And a lot of times, even the database decisions, you pick the database that is, does not have great failover, it's much harder for the ops team to deliver availability, it's, but it's often an engineering decision. Yeah. Um, how have you seen successful cases of ops saying, with the current software, we can only do that much. We need better capabilities at uh, the software layer to run it. Uh, I don't. I don't think I've seen that done successfully <laughs> very often. Uh, but I would say it's certainly something that needs to happen. It, it needs, even in a traditional sense, ops need to be involved with the development process early enough on so that they can bring their vast experience in running services at scale and reliability issues that they see, patterns, anti-patterns, to bring those to the developers so that they have that knowledge um, if they don't have that experience themselves. Uh, without that crossover, um, so I guess, I guess it's not really DevOps, it's kind of like a mix between traditional and DevOps, but that crossover needs to be there, otherwise, we just end up in a situation we were in in traditional ops where the two sides are just fighting with each other because they can never agree on whose fault something might be or who's responsible for fixing it or whatever it might be. Yeah, it's always an interesting line. Like, I think cloud providers did a good job explaining like that being cloud native really means writing software for which anything can go down or degrade at any point in time. And you, you, your SLA should just, your software should assume that bad things will happen yep. underneath it. So I do think that at least engineers who are <laughs> been 
attending conferences, trying to keep up to date in the last, uh, I don't know if a decade, but definitely five years already. Yes, definitely. Um, I, I would say, though, that there are certainly a lot of enterprises I've dealt with in the past where they really haven't started that journey to the cloud yet. So there are still a lot of very traditional ops enterprises out there uh, where the engineers might get to attend these conferences occasionally, but don't really have the ability to put that learning into practice in their own day-to-day. -day. So that can be challenging for any of them coming to a new organization that does have these practices or being part of that transition at an existing org to move into a DevOps kind of mindset. Um, it can be very scary for them because it's, I know the traditional thing is, it means having a pager. And I, I know as a developer past, it was always something that I feared uh, and never wanted. But I think that gets to just the mindset approach of, being aware that if you can make your services reliable and resistant to failure as best as you can, then you're not going to get paged every night. You might get paged occasionally, but it shouldn't be a all the time kind of thing. And if it is, then there are certainly other things that need fixing in your application to get away from that um, situation. And this also brings us back to the SLO, that it really lets you raise a flag and say, hey, we're suffering, customers are suffering, and we need to take the time to make our service more resilient. Now, I think every engineer has a bit of this career progression fear. I mean, you're senior principal, so I'm sure you worked hard to get to that position. It, most engineers fight extremely hard to get to that position. In a lot of orgs, I don't know like if I spend six months setting up chaos frameworks and fixing the gazillion bugs that uh, show up as a result of me having the chaos framework, it could be that not just I will not get promoted, nobody in my team will get promoted because this is not, a, this is just ops. You didn't deliver engineering features that uh, have impact that our product managers measure. Yeah, so that's definitely a challenge. And I think that kind of challenges the, I guess you could say, uh, maybe competency frameworks or promotion frameworks or anything we have that on the HR side to get away from just the pure, large, big project feature kind of accomplishment and be able to incorporate accomplishments around uh, reliability, um, impacts to customer, those kinds of things, which is more on the ops side and less on the pure developer side. But there is a lot of difficult, challenging work on the operations and platform side, and it needs to be recognized. And those folks who are in those areas should have as much opportunity for promotion and advancement as anyone who's doing pure development as well. Do you have tips for, like, I don't know, um, promo committees or have in the past and how to communicate the impact of this kind of work? I think it's one of the important aspects is to really hit home the financial aspect. So 
dealing with customer outages and impact minutes with customers and the cost to them for or you, depending on whether with your SLAs, whether you have to fund certain amounts of money if you're not available at certain times. Those kind of impacts are very key to highlight and the things you're doing to show that reduction over a period of time. If you're able to say that last year we had like 20 hours of outage and this year we're down to 10 because of these five things that we did to make our service more reliable, then that should have as much weight as a fancy new feature that introduced, brought on more customers and revenue and things like that. That makes sense. I want to dig into that in a second, but first I have one last question for the SLO part, oh. uh, because it also ties a bit into, I think we're circling around it, the feeling of safety of an engineer in an org. And part of it is that SLO is public, and usually if you declared that you have an objective, it means that now a lot of people will be looking at your SLI to see, are you meeting your objective and so on. Um, and as everyone knows, what gets measured also gets gamed. Um, do you see, like, how does that this dynamic have worked uh, for you? Like, the two have engineers, like, measures, have a measure and use it appropriately. Um, it, it's certainly a challenge. Um, because with SLOs, it's going to be something that BPs and hires want to have a roll-up view of their particular org and how their SLOs are doing. So you know, even if you might be one of hundreds of services deep down in a chain, that if you're red, then that's going to roll up to their perspective and they're going to see that. Um, I think the key is to be able to show that you are making steps to improve the reliability. Um, at the same time, if you're not doing anything and you're always red, then it's it's not going to be a good look. Um, but as long as you're making the steps to work to improve it and deliver those improvements, even if they're taking a long time to eventuate, I think that is reasonable to showcase to execs and VPs that, it's not like you're just delivering new features and ignoring the bugs. You are working on the bugs. Maybe it's a service that hasn't been touched for a while, so there's a lot of bugs that need to be worked through because of load is significantly increased or something like that. So I think it's also maybe a mind frame reset for execs to appreciate that not every problem can be fixed in a sprint. Sometimes it takes, so true. Sometimes it takes a quarter. Sometimes it takes two just because it's uh, almost like a rolling stone gathering moss. It's, it's one little fix after another will slowly make the situation better. There's not one big bang change that can be done to suddenly make it more reliable. Yeah, but sometimes there is like those big rocks, right? Like when you build the architecture in a way that's fundamentally you now realize is not ever going to be reliable. Like, I yeah. don't want to blame anything specific, but for a while, everyone used eventual consistency everywhere. Um, it has its drawbacks. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so that's certainly another challenging aspect to it is if your system or set of services has been architected in a way that you're now like, okay, this isn't going to 
make us work going forward, that does introduce even more challenges because that's going to take time to shift into the architecture you want while retaining the pieces and little like chess moves here and there to slowly get to that place. Um, so it's definitely key for those kind of situations to have executive buy-in and appreciation that you do want to reach that destination that they want as well. It just might take a year or two years before you're actually at that place where they can see the final product of you got there and things are better. Yeah. So stepping back, it's very clear that now you have those SLIs. Everyone is looking at them. Everyone is trying to make those SLIs move in the direction of the SLO. Um, it almost feels like crafting the correct indicator because so much rides on it. Uh, like the evaluation of whether I'm doing a good job at improving the system, the evaluation of how good the system is, how good does it need to be? Like a lot is riding on what do I actually measure? Yeah. Any best practices? Um, <laughs> the usual, keep it simple. Um, but in, in all seriousness, it's very much wanting to focus, certainly if the team or the developers haven't done SLOs before, you want to start small, maybe two or three SLOs for very key areas of that service that you know will impact customers greatly. And focus on those for a period of time but until you get familiar with SLOs themselves, how your service behaves, where its reliability problems are most likely to show up. And that will lead you to maybe change some of the existing SLOs you've created and add other ones or create uh, more, I guess, SLO journeys or customer journeys that might span several services to give you that higher level view of, although my service might be running okay, the ones I'm dealing with aren't and we need to flag that up because then mine might start showing some issues uh, because the other one I'm depending on isn't responding anymore. And that gets into some very interesting um, concepts around trying to roll up SLOs uh, in terms of what the customer is. Because from a service perspective, the customer is anyone that talks to it. But from an external perspective, that SLO for that service is great. And I can use that as a, okay, I know I can't be, if they're like 99.9, then I know I have to be like, less than 99.9, I can't be 100. But it becomes even more complicated when you need to factor into, which is usually the case, uh, like latency of networks and things like that. So it's not a simple case of being able to sum up SLOs of all these dependent services because it's ignoring the network connections between them. Wow, there's just so much to dive in here. This is just amazing. Um, you mentioned customer journey and the customer experience, which just seems like such an amazing starting point for, hey, we did not have an SLO until today. I need to introduce one. Where do I start? Uh, so it sounds like you're like, ask a PM, what is a customer actually trying to do and yeah. walk backwards toward what has to be available? Definitely. And that the customer journeys is definitely something that needs to be done by the PM and maybe many PMs, depending on how many projects or products 
the customer journey spans. And I think that's where a lot of the challenge is. So for example, at Workday, because we have so many services managed by so many different engineering groups and PMs, trying to start with that was just too complicated. So we're like starting at the, okay, let's get a service team to create an SLO and then we can work up to doing the cross-service SLO. But for a SaaS that might be a lot smaller, a lot more agile, it's probably a lot easier to start at the customer journey level because it's less likely to deal with half a dozen or more teams to try and get agreement about what that journey is and what pieces are critical for that journey. Yeah, I'm trying to think like how the bottom-up would have worked. Like, because, okay, the Kafka team say we can, we think the right way to measure Kafka is by how many successful producers per minute and then I don't even know how to measure it on the consumer side. I think it's uh, not getting all the messages that was just produced or something. Like it gets, even at the service level, it actually gets tricky. Yeah. And I would say that if I know that the consume is not an important part of the customer journey, I would not even bother, even though from engineering, it's part of my service. But I guess it doesn't work that way. Uh, it depends. I could see there being situations where depending on the interaction flow that might be present for a customer that the end of the customer journey is that message going onto a queue and the production side of it and the consumption side is less concerned because if the consumer is or customer isn't waiting for something at that point and as far as they're concerned the task is complete that is the journey it, it, it may very there may very well be a high level journey that incorporates what happens after the fact but for, if a customer is only concerned with doing my tasks and then some asynchronous piece of work is put on a queue to happen after the fact, that's probably outside that main customer journey. That's fantastic. So basically, it seems like even if I'm doing, as, a, as you said, like we're doing bottom-up as a team, I'm trying to understand how to measure my own service, I should go to at least the internal people who rely on my service and say, what is in your critical path? essentially. Yeah, it's it's definitely good to have that high level view across teams. And I think this is another way for disparate teams to actually have more contact with each other and be more aware around their dependent services and who they're dependent on. Um, I know it's very easy in large organizations to be very siloed in a, a team's thinking of focusing on their own service without they know they have services that call them or services that they call, but usually it's done as an API contract and like that's the only interaction you have with the team. Whereas if it's a customer yeah, journey, services, then uh, it's there's more of a push to be involved with those teams and those services to try and improve that SLO for the whole journey and not just your service piece of it. I like that. I think it also addresses my other concern. Let's say that I'm, you know, from a service, I rely on a key management service to be able to decrypt some data and mm -hmm. I cannot serve data if I don't have access to the key. And let's say that I'm not happy with the availability numbers that I'm getting from the other team. There's basically two ways to resolve it. Right. Option one is to tell them, look, I need from you a, 
SLO of at least 99.99 in order for me to meet my 99.95 SLO, something yeah. like that. The other option is that they will tell me, no, this is our availability. You write your software to deal with the fact that we are not always available. Introduce caching, uh, like figure it out. Uh, we're not always going to be available. How is that typically negotiated? Um, it can be challenging uh, depending on what numbers we're talking about. There may be um, physical limits to what some services can actually deliver. Um, I, I would say it's something that needs to be discussed to find out where those limits are. And maybe there's also a third option of the service that calls the other one having to reevaluate its SLO target and say, maybe we need to be lower to allow for the fact that they can't go any faster and we can't go any faster. Um, so it's definitely a mutual discussion between groups to get agreement on that is and what that is. And maybe it's a case as well that this is kind of another piece of API contract negotiation between teams that SLO objectives are part of that going forward. Um, but yeah, it's, it's probably not always an easy conversation with some teams. Um, I, I would imagine it can get very, I guess, emotional if you're kind of implying that someone's service should be faster and more available. Um, but I, if we can focus on the numbers and provide reasons as to why, then I think it's a conversation that can reach a uh, suitable outcome for all parties. And even it can be like an ROI conversation, how, how much it will cost to achieve better availability here versus here versus do we even going to recoup the costs if we decide to become more available? Like, is it ever going to pay for itself or something? That's very true as well. It needs to take into account the cost of attain that, attaining that additional reliability um, as that does become much more expensive as the numbers get higher. And there is a point where it's just not financially viable to keep trying to get higher uh, for the benefits that you see with it. Yeah, and something, and it may tie into, we want to talk a bit about observability as well, uh, because like, let's say that I'm targeting 95% uh, availability, like it's not that critical of a service, but how do I set like the pager in that sense? Like, do I allow for downtimes only page me when I'm getting close to my limit, or do I get paged like I'm 99%, but I just get paged more? In which case, I'm actually very unhappy being a 95% target team. <laughs> yeah, so th those are all good questions, and I think that kind of ties into one of the key. Uh, aspects that developers need to be aware of around SLOs is that they're not the same, their purpose is not the same as an alert to say you've hit some target on a latency that means it's running too slow. It, these are alerts that are meant to give you warning of problems building up within your service, but something isn't actually happening right now. So they often don't require immediate action. They're usually alerts that might give you a, 
So, for example, you could get an alert saying that at the error burn rate you're on for this service right now, that you'll use up your budget in two weeks. And so you mm -hmm. can get that alert and you can then decide to prioritize looking at that service and trying to fix that reliability, reduce those errors to improve that error budget burn rate. Um, and there's all, depending on, there's many different alerting strategies. I know the Google book had, um, I think, four different uh, alert windows that it talks about. Um, but in essence, you want to be able to alert the service teams well before an actual breach of their SLO. That is kind of like the worst case situation of actually breaching. It, this is meant to give them that forewarning to have time to react and be proactive about fixing a problem before it becomes a breach and potentially, depending on targets, uh, an SLA breach as well. Yeah, there is a school of thought that says that you only ever alert on SLO breaches, but it sounds like you advocate a bit more depth, depth to the approach. Yeah, I don't think it's a, a one or the other kind of situation. I, I, I think definitely alerting on SLO approaching breaches is important, but also alerts that say something drastic has gone wrong with the service. If you don't have those alerts, then it goes from nothing everything being fine to suddenly there's a fire and you don't know. Uh, I think the traditional alerting still has its place, but it's a different purpose than the kind of SLO alerts. So I would say that depending on how your organization is structured, whether it's traditional ops or whether it's DevOps, those alerts go to different people. So SLO based alerts will always go to the devs because they're the ones that need to fix the reliability of the service, more than likely, in most cases. Um, but then if it's an alert for something is down or we've had massive errors, then that would be the ops side. Now, granted, if it's a DevOps team, they're both kinds are going to the same people. Um, so I, I classify it as a slightly different set of alerts for a different use case. Makes sense. So, okay. We have an SLO, we know how to operationalize it. We picked some metrics based on customer journey and our understand, deep understanding of the service and how it matters. Now we need to manage all those metrics, targets, goals, all of that across a very large organization, maybe with a lot of dependencies between services. How do people do that? Um, well, there's several different tools around that can help with that. Um, there's, uh, was that maybe 18 months ago, a new project called, um, open SLO, uh, was introduced Ooh. to find a standard for SLO documents where you can specify what your objective is, what the indicator is, uh, what alerts should trigger under which conditions, um, and I've uh, done some work with that community to uh, help them along and also facilitate some changes we needed from Workday. Um, it's still in its very early days and it's a small community right now, but it's starting to build up some steam. And in addition to that, there's also other projects like um, Sloth is another one, which 
is focused on Prometheus. Um, it has its own SLO document format, but is, it also supports generating uh, dashboards and alerts and Prometheus recording rules from uh, OpenSLO documents as well. Uh, that's probably one of the biggest differences is OpenSLO is intending to be used with any metric backend. Um, it was originally created by Noble9, uh, and they've kind of created an open source project around it. Um, there are some others as well. Um, oh, oh it seems like a good point us to go on. Yeah, there's a couple of others as well. I can't recall their names right now. Um, but they're certainly two of the bigger ones in the space. Uh, and it all depends on, I guess, how you want to define things. Um, so both of them utilize YAML structure to define them. There are also tools out there that are more of a GUI creation of SLOs. Uh, I like the kind of code creation ones just to have that uh, uh, yeah. kind of like configuration. I was about to ask, can I use like SQL or Python? <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they they embed the PromQL or whatever the metric backend language is in them to be able to do those metrics and indicators within it. But you can also do very interesting things like um, there's Sloth, which can generate Prometheus recording rules from them. There's also one that's now part of the OpenSLO project called SlowGen, which was donated by Sumo Logic. Um, it's SlowGen? Yeah, S-L-O-G-E-N. That's going to be a generic um, dashboard and recording rule generator from um, OpenSLO document format. Right now, I think it only supports Sumo Logic. But uh, the intent is to have generic uh, plugins to be able to generate Prometheus equivalents uh, going forward. So I'm looking forward to see, seeing that progress. I kind of love how relaxing all those project names are. Like it seems like something about SLO makes things, people think about slosses and like stuff that takes the time. And like yeah, well, long-term metrics. So. It can take a lot of time to get SLOs right. And I, I certainly um, followed the writings of um, Alex Hidalgo and Liz, Liz Fong Jones for a long time around this topic. Um, so they're certainly far more expert in this than I am. So uh, I try and learn from them when I can. Yeah. Yeah, it does look like there is a lot of learning. Um, and you got to work on SLO after you worked on observability, and you still are the observability architect formally. So I'm wondering if there is any level of observability maturity that I need before I even start thinking about this at all. Like you just tell me, Gwen, you're not there. <laughs> do your homework first. <laughs> and if so, what do I need to do first? <laughs> so I, I guess I, there's a couple of aspects to getting started. One is being able to uh, think about what your customer journeys are, as we talked about earlier, being able to define those. Um, but the big one is being able to get metrics out of your system. Um, now, you can base the SLIs on logs or other things, but metrics is probably the easiest to get started with. And 
frankly, if you don't have metrics, you probably don't have much observability at all right now. So you probably want to start there before you start thinking about SLOs. Uh, but if you've got a metrics backend in place and you're collecting metrics from your services, then it should be fairly straightforward to start thinking about what these SLOs should be for your services, what their targets should be. Because um, having that conversation with PM, with engineering managers around what are the targets we want to shoot for, that, that is where most of the time is going to be spent because um, there is certainly a fallacy around being able to hit 100%. Everyone wants to hit 100%, but in reality, that's just not practical for many reasons. But it's coming up with a number that is a reasonable target for your service based on how you know it behaves today. And maybe that's only 85% for some services when you first start out. And there is also the concept of being able to set a, a hard SLO target and then like an aspirational SLO target where you can say, I might be 85 now, but I'd like to get to 90. So I want to see how I'm doing compared to that. So you can get a sense of, well, how close are we to being able to say, okay, our SLO is now 90 and the aspirational is like 93 or something like that. Yeah, I like that. Like you could say, okay, no, at the end of the month, we want to, we are currently 83. At the end of the month, we want to be 83.5. In three years, we want to be 99.99. Yep. Let's draw a journey. If, and if it's literally impossible go back to the drawing board and figure out do we invest a lot more or we kind of like, okay, we're not going to get to that ever, essentially. Yeah, and, and I think that's important because it will drive architectural discussions around determining whether what we've got architect today can actually achieve the kind of reliability that we want exactly. or whether we need to rethink the architecture to be able to do that. Uh, without having a sense of where you are today in terms of that reliability, it's very hard to have those conversations. Yeah, I feel like there should also be a conversation around a feedback loop in a sense. And you mentioned it very early on. Like every sentence you say is kind of packed. So I'm <laughs> coming back for two earlier scenes. Uh, when I, let's say right now I'm a startup. I have a service. Uh, now, may, Right now, it's exactly one service. It has uh, some APIs, and I have metrics around request rate, uh, latency, and error rate. And let's say that I want the rate of uh, error 500 returned on my APIs to be um, zero, <laughs> ideally zero. I should probably set zero as a target. But let's say that I want 99% of my requests to be Successful. I can set a target, I have the measures, my team can fix 500, so this is easy. But it also looks like insufficient. And I'm like, and as the company grows and matures, I probably need more maybe involved metrics and maybe more involved SLOs. Are there any advice on how to like how to take on this journey? How do you know what's next? Um well <laughs> We've talked about it a lot, but I'd say it kind of all depends on the customer journey and that you can certainly start from an individual service looking at that perspective of what are my error rates and trying to get those to zero or whatever number you're looking for. But then it needs to take the next step up and maybe it's still that same service, 
but different endpoints is the customer journey that involves three or four different steps. Maybe it's calling other pieces as well it, to give you that sense of measuring the customer happiness about whether your service is making customers happy or making them unhappy because it's too slow or returning errors all the time or is finding things that are not available. That's probably the next step up. Um, and it all seems to come back to customer journeys as being like the key thing we're striving for here. Yeah, I, I love it because um, like I think a long time ago, maybe it's from the Google book, like, no, like the number of nines that your S metric has does not matter what, like if the customer is complaining, they're having a problem. Yes. Yeah, I, I think that's a very important point to point uh, make is that it's about the happiness of the customer, whether that means your service is 80% reliable and they're completely happy. That's great. You don't need to have a 95 or higher reliable service if you can be 80% reliable and your customer loves it. Likewise, if you're at four nines and your customer hates your service, then <laughs> something still needs to be done. It's being able to measure that line between your service reliability and whether the customers are happy because that's going to dictate whether you have a target that is actually aligned with meeting that customer happiness. I like it. Yes. I'm also thinking about the inverse because like one of the things that I heard a lot from Liz from Jones, charity majors is that sometimes a customer unhappiness will not reflect in this law. Like I can have great availability numbers, but the customers will complain because those customers are outliers, but they are still extremely unhappy. Yeah. Are there any, do you have experience with how to work around this problem? Like do I need better metrics? Um, some of that might come back to having the right metrics. And by that, I mean, um, not excluding the outliers from your metric calculations. Uh, I know there's, I've read a lot of stuff around how people are like really focused on the P99 99th percentile for metrics. But to, as I think Liz and Charity say often, it's like, that's great. But then if there's five people that are like 10 times worse than P99, they're going to be way more unhappy than anyone who is at that P99. So you need to measure those and be aware of them as well. Um, so I think that gets to having SLIs that are part of the SLO take into account every metric and not be uh, averaging or hitting certain percentiles to make sure that all what would be considered outliers in a lot of situations incorporated into that happiness measure. That makes, I like that uh, SLO can be seen or SLI can be seen as happiness score of your customers. And basically what we're doing is try to approximate it with the tools we have, etc. Yeah, and it's not perfect because at the end of the day, it's people coming up with what that journey is and trying to put a number on it. Um, we're going to get it wrong when we first start because if you've not done it before, you're kind of somewhat guessing as to, 
what what's the point a customer will be happy and what they won't be but through um, experience with support tickets and things like that from customers you'll get a better sense of whether that target you're shooting for is too low because you're getting a ton of tickets saying that either things aren't working or they're just unhappy it's too slow so you need to look at revamping those numbers likewise uh, inversely if you're at a target and you're not getting any support tickets then you're fairly confident that the customers are happy and maybe you could even look to reduce the reliability a little bit potentially depending on <laughs> how how strange your other services are around um i think that's an aspect that often gets overlooked is that you can make your services less reliable and still keep customers happy within yeah. Within and reason. you can get benefits, like you can take bigger product risks, maybe, or yes. uh, do something that is ar architecturally a bit more risky, uh, but likely to have a great uh, outcome. Uh, like, yeah, I think the, you hit it on the head, like, so important to figure what aspects of your service your customers really care about and optimize for those and possibly the trade off of others where they don't care. Yeah, it's very easy to try and optimize everything when you really need to focus on the key journeys that customers make and the key journeys that have a bigger impact on them. Um, so, for example, like logging into sites is something that people usually complain about if it's not great. So that's certainly a journey that you want to make sure is as smooth and as fast as possible. Changing a... Um, phone number or an address on a site probably wouldn't fall into the same category as being as critical because it doesn't happen as often. They're less concerned if it takes a little bit longer. So it's figuring out for all the journeys you have, which of those are the key ones or most important ones to start focusing on for your SLO journey. Absolutely. And you can even architect the customer journey. I'm thinking how... Um... At Confluent Cloud, it was two-tier. I mean, you had to talk to the control plane to do a lot of operations, and then you could also, you also produce and consume directly to your Kafka. Yep. Uh, for us, if the control plane was down, it was not great. You couldn't spin up new clusters. You couldn't check your bill. Like, it was not amazing. But it was a lot less complaining than if Kafka went down. This is the thing that customers care about. And this was architected, like the fact that you could directly connect your Kafka cluster without getting proxied or redirected or anything via the control plane was an architectural choice that allowed the control plane to uh, evolve in directions that are different and not focus as much on, I have to be in every region, every cloud kind of things. Yeah, I know that's very important and it gets to understanding what your key business outcome is and to focus on the reliability of those and be less concerned about the periphery that might support that business outcome. But if uh, have reliability issues or go down a bit more frequently, don't stop the customer from using the product. Exactly. So you basically, we talked about how observability and SLO, they're not a service concern. They're cross-company concerns because of the customer journey that spans all those services. And I did notice that your background is in platform engineering, and it does seem like it's an area that could really benefit from platform thinking. Do you have kind of 
platform syncing advice to people who are tackling observability and SLO? Uh, it's, I think, getting everyone on the same page. Um, so at Workday, I've been running a working group with a whole bunch of uh, folks from different parts of the org, mostly from platform engineering, but some from the development side as well. And it's getting everyone on the same page about what these things mean, because for different people, SLOs can mean slightly different things. So it's wanting to make sure everyone's on the same page, has the same understanding. And being part of platform means that we can work on defining, I guess you could say, like an education process for development teams to understand SLOs before they're having to implement them and being able to walk them through. So we're taking the approach of doing that within our own platform services, wanting to define SLOs to provide an example for developers to take and use. And we want to, it's not completely cookie cutter, but we want to get to a point where as much as possible for developers, it's cookie cutter and they don't have to worry about the details of how they define these things necessarily. They just have to know and understand their service and how that applies to defining a target for an SLO and everything else around it kind of like happens for them. That's amazing. And so being a platform team allows you to basically create the right tools for engineers to yeah. not worry about anything except their service, which is lacking a platform engineering team. I have to now go and look at the at least three different things that you mentioned here and figure <laughs> out which one of them is right for me. And then you also get to participate in the development of those tools. Like, so, because yeah. most platform engineering team actually are kind of stuck between, is I did it myself or I pick some tools that is not perfect and live with it. It sounds like you managed to get a bit deeper into that. Yeah, no, I'm certainly looking for tools that do what we need and, and as much as possible or off the shelf open source tools. But, there are certainly also aspects that require some additional tweaking and work. So I've been contributing those back as well to help the wider community, but also to help Workday in its journey to, journey towards SLOs. Yeah. I think it's super powerful for Workday to have someone who is deeply involved in the creation of those tools and standards because it means that it can pick off the chef tools that were actually architected with its concern in mind. I'm guessing that I mean, right now, I don't know if it's immediate gain, but if we talk about SLO as a journey, it's fairly obvious that you will not be stuck with a crappy tool that does not reflect your company value. Yeah, it's certainly beneficial. And I think that's kind of the big draw of open source for me and for a lot of orgs is having the ability to have your say and your input into the direction and what's being done with a certain project or tool. Um, so yeah, we're definitely seeing that benefit. At work day. If I'm about to, let's say that I want to pick up one of those projects for my SLO, and maybe I want to at least align it with the way that my org is working, and maybe even work with, enjoy the community aspect of working with like-minded people who have share similar concerns. How do I know that the way I'm thinking about SLOs and the way that the projects are thinking about SLO actually are a good fit? Um, hmm. I think there's no real 
easy way to know unless until you get in there and start trying to use the tool and interact with the community, asking questions of if I'm trying to do X, how does that get implemented with this? Um, oh, and then if they say, no, 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 you should never do X, you have a pretty good sign. <laughs> well, it could, it could be that that means that tool isn't for you, or it could mean that be that you're thinking about things wrong as well. And that's something I've learned a lot with the open SLO community is that these are folks that have been doing SLOs for years now. So they know, have a lot of experience with organizations. So it's very interesting to hear their insights and perspectives of how to solve certain problems. And one of the things the open SLO community is doing right now is looking to create a whole series of examples um, for the specification to say, for example, if you have like a HTTP request response service that you want an SLO for, this is an example for Prometheus. Um, that hasn't been there today, but we're looking to add a bunch of those examples to be able to make it easier for anyone trying to understand the spec to be able to look at examples of, oh, how do I do a burn down for error budget over like two weeks or anything like that. And there's an example that they can look at and this is how we define it in the spec. Um, so that's being worked on right now, which is really cool. And I'm looking forward to seeing that. Yes, I love it. Amazing. Any last tip for I'm introducing SLO to my organization? Um, main tip, don't rush it. <laughs> Uh, like there is no quick tips and just do the hard work. Uh, unfortunately, it's it's definitely a case of it's very easy to get wrong. So it, it's a it's a tricky one because you don't want to rush, but it will say also at the same time you don't want to take forever. Um, so what you kind of want to put something out there. Sorry. What happens if I do it wrong? Let's say that I am a startup. I'm in a rush. I'm going to move fast and get an SLO. What's the worst thing that can possibly happen? Uh, the, uh, the, probably the worst thing is just that you might annoy the developers with uh, overly chatty alerts if, with burn downs or warnings. Um, but getting it wrong does lead you to getting it right faster as opposed to not doing anything. So there is that kind of trade off as well. So as long as developers can actually tweak it or even turn it off and say it's not working for us, let's go back to the drawing board, it seems like a fairly safe experiment for it to run. I think so, yeah. It, do it doesn't directly impact customers because it's for internal use. Uh, so it's really a win-win situation and it can give you incredible insights and force the developers to have that understanding of their service that they can come up with these reasonable targets without just saying, oh yeah, I'm we're four nines, no, no worries. And it's easy to say, it's, it's a little harder to back up. Yeah, actually, since we already gave a shout out for both to both Liz and Charity, uh, have you seen like a tool like Honeycomb being useful in getting the understanding that will lead to good SLOs, like because does that tie up together, or is it like I've not separate projects? I've not played a lot with Honeycomb. Um, I did a while back, but I think that was before SLOs were in there. Um, I've seen some demos of it, and it looks really cool. Um, and that's certainly, I guess, a very 
important tie-in is having your SLOs integrated into your metrics backend or whatever backend you might have for your telemetry data is key to giving you both the immediate view of those SLOs, but you also want to take into account like the historical perspective to see how you're trending over time. Are you trending in the right direction in terms of SLOs being breaching less frequently? Are you so far within your SLOs that you could actually make the target higher? Uh, all these kinds of things require that historical data to give you that perspective. Makes sense. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much, Ken, for joining and educating us. It's been a lot of learning. <laughs> well, it was my absolute pleasure, Gwen. Thank you very much for having me.